Would you take a minute and pray with me? Father, we've just spent time acknowledging there is nothing more magnificent than our King Jesus. And it's because of what He accomplished that we are able to gather here today and just be so full of song. Thank you for the gifts that you've given those who are gifted in music to lead us this way. Father, I thank you for uh, just lungs full of air that we can sing and move sounds over our vocal cords and it all translates into praise and glory and honor. We get to participate with the same thing the angels get to do. Father, our hearts are prepared now, so we ask that your Holy Spirit would invade this place and just brood over this auditorium, over the children downstairs and what they're involved in with their presentation, that your name would be lifted higher. So God, we take this time right now and we're going to dig into things that were written down for us as instruction for us thousands of years ago. And you moved through the hearts of men by the power of your spirit and inspired them to write what you wanted us to know. Things that we don't take lightly, so we ask, Father, that you'd give us the capacity to see the personal application you have for our lives as we look at this this morning. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So, how do you measure love? My wife has standards by which she measures love. She may not really articulate it all the time, but she definitely has measures. Her love language, she calls it. When I put in shelving just the right way, oh honey, you're speaking my love language now. Gratefully, her love language isn't so much jewelry as it is shelving, because that's a lot more affordable, but she likes jewelry too. See, we all have our love language. We all have ways by which we measure When someone in our life does things or actions or words that they say indicate whether or not they really love us. Paul had a hard time grasping, as do we, what the love of God looks like because it's so massive. So he articulated it this way. If you look with me up on the screen, you'll see Ephesians 3.17. This is the way he posed it. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Do you see that Paul is searching to describe the indescribable? I wish that you would catalambano, that's the word comprehend. Catalambano means to apprehend, that you could seize it, that you could comprehend the breadth and the height and the depth and this love that's in Christ Jesus. God knows how hard it is for us to comprehend this. So at the pinnacle of the world's greatest moment, one thing that had happened previous 2,000 years ago never happened again, never happened before. At the pinnacle of history, God put the brakes on and stopped everything to give us an example of what it looks like to experience his love, to be drawn right in. The magnitude of God's love is magnified on the shore of a beach in John chapter 21. 
That's where I want to take you to this morning. And so if you have your Bibles with you and you would turn to John chapter 21, if you're brand new here this morning, you may not know that there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and those are there for your benefit, not only for you to follow along this morning, but if you don't own your own Bible, it's our gift to you. We'd like you to take that with you when you leave today so that you have a copy of God's Word. But it'll also be up on the screen so you can follow along up there. So we're going to see now that God shows up on a beach this week just on your behalf so that I would suffer for Jesus. I drove all the way over to Lake Michigan and I went to Grand Haven and I stood on the beach just so I could hear the pound of the surf, to feel the sand on my feet, to appreciate this moment of God standing on a beach Look with me up on the screen at John chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, what things? These are the things that just happened, the resurrection. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. It just had a name change. By the time John is in his 90s, the Roman government had renamed the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias. And John's in his 90s when he's writing this, looking back to the time when he's in his 20s. So he plays to the understanding of the time, and he writes down the Sea of Tiberias. So we understand this setting. So after these things, he says, these are the things of Jesus' resurrection. Easter morning has taken place. The resurrection. People are seeing Jesus. He's appearing around the countryside. And the disciples, when Jesus was resurrected, knew they had one specific directive. Jesus said, when I'm resurrected, you are to go to Galilee to meet me. Now, geographically, you may not know where that's at. That's in the northern part of Israel. Jerusalem is in the southern part. People are seeing Jesus in the Jerusalem area, the southern part. But Jesus gave them directives. Look with me up on the screen. Mark 14, 28, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. See, it's a command. You're going to go there. I'm going to go ahead of you first. Look with me next, Matthew 28, 10. Then Jesus said to them, he's speaking to the women who were at the tomb. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, he drills down and gets really specific. It's not just Galilee. Not just the northern region. He has a place he wants them to go to. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 28, 16. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, we understand from this text that Jesus manifested himself. He appeared all of a sudden. People didn't know he was going to be there, and boom, there he was. And many times they didn't recognize him. His characteristics, his face, something had changed about him. The resurrected body looked differently. So people are seeing him, and the disciples want to see him, so they take off and they go to the mountain, this mountain specifically in Galilee. But we see a problem here in the text. The problem is, it says they're, they're at the sea. They're on the seashore. They're not at the mountain. Jesus said, go to the mountainside. Matthew 28, 16, go to the mountain. Wait for me there. They've gone to the lake. So you wonder, did they hang a little sign on the mountain that said, gone fishing? Jesus, we're, we, we checked out for a while. We've got, decided to go someplace else. I don't know how they handled it, but Peter evidently grew impatient waiting for God. Waiting for Jesus to show up, he said to the others, I'm going to go fishing. So verse 2, 
Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, meaning the twin, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. So you got seven now, seven guys were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Peter is not known for being a patient man. He's known for being impulsive. And in this case, he's not waiting. He's not waiting for God. He decides to go and do his own thing. So rather than waiting, he's returning to his former life. When it says gone fishing, the way that it's written in the Greek, it's written in the present tense, and it's a continuing action. Anytime it's written in the present tense, it means I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to fishing, not waiting. I'm going to jump on and get on with life. I sense that there was probably in him this sense of inadequacy. He had failed God. You remember what happened in the garden he committed. In the garden, he cut off the ear of the servant. In the garden, he bursted forth to say, I'll defend you, and then ran, and then denied, and then was confused. So we've got a man here who's a little bit perplexed. So he's going to go back to what's safe, what he knows. I'm going to go back to fishing. He's a commercial fisherman. He could be on deadliest catch. He understands it. These guys that are with him, they made their living at the sea. They know what it is. But Jesus had chosen them to be fishers of men. That's what Scripture tells us. As a matter of fact, that phrase, fishers of men, is not unique to Jesus. It predates Jesus. It goes back to the Greek philosophers hundreds of years before Jesus. To be a fisher of men meant to capture men's minds and to expose them to the truth. This is what Jesus said to them, Matthew 4, 19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So that's at the beginning. They've left everything behind. They've left their old life, their jobs, and they're following Jesus. But now we find them back at it. And so that night... They caught nothing. Do you ever notice that when you're outside of God's will, nothing really fits together the way it's supposed to? You stand opposed to God. You do things other than what he's called you to do. The pieces just don't fit. It doesn't make sense, but they don't. So they got this useless night, and daylight's on the horizon. They spent the entire night out on the ocean, and now the sun's starting to come up. One of the other reasons we believe that he's gone back specifically to fishing as a living is because commercial fishermen always went out at nighttime to fish because they would be the first ones to the market in the morning with their catch and they would get the greatest reward financially because they'd have the freshest fish when the market opened. So look with me at verse 4. Now when the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Don't let that pass too quickly. God's standing on the beach. You go back one chapter, God's been put in the coffin. He's dead. And now he's on the beach. Dead people don't go to the beach. I was there. I didn't see any dead people. Live, a living people go to the beach. God's standing on the beach and he's watching. Jesus stood on the beach 
And this resurrection has confused us for 2,000 years. How do we fit this together? That God so loved the world that he became man, that he allowed himself to be crucified, died, gone into the ground, buried, and then yet, boom, he's resurrected. It's victorious. He sees the keys of hell and death. Do you know that his resurrection was so powerful that it caused a severe earthquake? I don't know if you ever saw this before. A megas seismos. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 28, 2. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Most theologians believe and historians that these soldiers were the Praetorian guard of the Roman army, not the temple guard. The Praetorians are like the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers. These are Marines. These guys don't faint easily. They fainted. They became like dead men because of the megas seismos. The earth shook so violently because the king of the king was resurrected. As a matter of fact, this event was so much like nothing the world had ever seen that when Jesus was resurrected, dead people started showing up. I don't know if you ever saw this before. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. I see dead people. Ooh, creepy. (laughs) Except, I'm totally expecting these were alive, not mummies wrapped around in wrappings. When God brings back to life, he brings back life. Can you imagine, though, seeing dead Uncle Leo walk through the door and you're eating your matzah? Whoa, (laughs) that would set you back. So I asked this question. The earth shook. There's dead people walking around. Why is God on the beach? Why is he standing on the shoreline? And they didn't know that it was God on the beach. They didn't even recognize him. What's he doing? He's watching his children. And they're doing something other than what he had told them to do. They've been caught. They're supposed to be at the mountain. And God's standing on the beach watching them. So the question he asks next in verse 5, it really anticipates a negative response. So Jesus, verse 5, so Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. Fail? They've tried to attempt to do on their own what they can't do. And God has done through them. God is about to bring them face to face with the power of the creator. You want fish? I'll give you fish. I want you to see what happens next, verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. God's calling them out. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, commercial fishermen who have worked all night long are frustrated and tired and maybe thinking in their mind, mind your own business. But Jesus says, try the other side. And so, something authoritative in the voice, they do it. 
They throw it out. So 6B, so they cast and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of the fish. I spent some time studying the first century fishing economy, how it impacted the economy of the first century world when guys would be commercial fishermen. This was very important to them to cast the nets just right because this was a big job to pull weights up from the bottom of the sea with the net. It was a lot of work. These were muscular men. So when Jesus is saying, throw it out on the other side, this is not a simple thing to do. They were very good at this, though. And when it would hit the water, and the weights would settle down all the way to the bottom of the ocean, when they would bring it up, they would hope for maybe five or ten fish, most likely not large fish. But Scripture tells us 153 fish is what they caught. And it's so heavy, they can't bring it in. The Creator who had moved a school away from them throughout the entire night so they would catch nothing, now redirects all of His creation and says to the fish, come back. And the net is so full, seven men who made their living at the sea could not pull the net out of the sea. It is so full. Ladies, I don't know if you know this, but men laugh when they make catches like this. We laugh boisterously. I've been on the boats. It might be a secret to you know to ladies, ladies to know this, but men giggle. I've been on the boats. I've been there when we catch those large catches and we begin laughing so hard that we lose some of our strength. And I can see where we'll discount a little bit for the silliness of them just trying to pull in the nets while they're laughing because they got this huge catch. This is great. Success. Look at what Warren Wiersbe says about this moment. Dr. Warren Wiersbe said, the difference between success and failure was the width of a boat. We are never far from success when we permit Jesus to give the orders, and we are usually closer to success than we realize. There's my insight on this. In spite of the fact that they're not doing what God had called them to do, he's still working through them. He's still acting on their behalf. Why? To draw them back in. So in the midst of their disobedience, God is so faithful that God did not leave them alone. Do you know that standing on the beach, he could have left them in the boat and never said a word. God could have left them in the boat. But instead, your God initiates the process, the process of drawing them back in. The single greatest moment in the history of the world. And God puts the brakes on and shows up on a beach. Say, what are you doing? What are you guys doing here? He initiates the process. He says, try the other side. Your side isn't working. Try my side. So pick it up with me in verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, and this is John writing. He calls himself that. Jesus loved all the disciples, but this is John's favorite title for himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work. 
and threw himself into the sea. You know, most people take off their clothes when they go swimming. Peter puts on his clothes to go swimming. Verse 8, but the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. There's so much they can't get it in. So get this huge net. And if these guys, there's seven of them, muscular men, they could lift maybe seven pounds, 70 pounds a piece. I have no idea. There's hundreds of pounds of fish, 153 dragging in this net. How long did it take to row in, just pulling that load behind him? So they're dragging the net full of fish, verse 9. So when they got out, got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. 90-year-old John writing this. Can you picture this? He's remembering this moment. Jesus has a grill already set up. And there's bread and fish. What speaks to the heart of a fisherman? Jesus didn't put tacos out there. They're fishermen. He gives them fish. And I'm totally expecting that what you see next is Jesus creating the fish for this moment. I don't think he got out there before them and was casting a line into the water to try and catch some fish. Pick it up with me in verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you now have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Can you tell this is an eyewitness account? This is somebody who was actually there and saw this happening. He says Peter was stripped. He's right down to his loincloth. In the warm season of the year, they did that. But he put on his clothes to jump in the water. Peter doesn't even care at this moment about the fish in the net. Even though he's been out there all night trying to catch it for the market, he jumps over into the water and runs for shore. He threw himself in. That's how intense his desire is to be with God at this moment, forgetting everything else. And Jesus already has a bag of Kingsford laying out there, and the charcoal is lit. There is nothing like when you've been out in the water for a long period of time coming into shore and finding a warm beach fire and fish and bread. God's speaking right to their soul, and he's warming them up. Look with me at the next verse, verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Did you know God cooked? Isn't that cool? Come and have He's already cooked it for them. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. They know it's the Lord, and yet they're not going to say anything. Do you think in your humanness, you can identify with this, do you think that there's a sense of guilt in their hearts? We're supposed to be at the mountain. God showed up on the beach, and now he's cooking for us, and they're not going to say a word. They're just going to keep it to themselves. They think it's the Lord, but they don't want to say it. I think they're in awe, church. I think they're in awe that they're in the presence of the resurrected king of kings who is cooking them breakfast on the beach. And he's being very earthy and real. And apparently, they're so overwhelmed that they can't even accept the invitation. If you look closely at the verse, you see that Jesus handed the fish to them and handed the bread. You see that detail? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. They're so reluctant 
He actually puts it in their hands. Now remember, Peter has just gone for a morning swim. He's been out working all night long. He's hungry, and Jesus fed him. He's dried off now because he's in front of the fire. They're laughing because they sat around and ate breakfast together. It's what guys do. And at this moment, God is about to have the hardest conversation with Peter that Peter's ever had in his life and probably will ever have again. He speaks directly to his soul. This is his moment. Peter, what are you doing? Look with me, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? God never makes it easy for people who are living outside of the will of God. Rather, he speaks directly to our heart. Many times we push it away. But God does not want a false sense of confidence about the relationship. Remember, they just had good times together. They've enjoyed a meal together. He's dried off. And that's the moment when God goes right to the heart. Peter, do you love me? This is that, what are you doing here moment? The relationship is broken. And Jesus initiates the fix. He's not waiting for Peter to even come. He's going after Peter himself. Peter denied Jesus three times and said, I don't know the man. He's confused when he shows up at the tomb. Last time we see Peter is when he's at the tomb looking at the surroundings, trying to figure out. In John chapter 20, it says that John believed, but it doesn't say anything about Peter. He just turned around and left. But we know this about our God. Peter's failures in the past are not his end, are they? They're absolutely not. It's just the beginning. So what comes next is a rebuke. And I want you to see the rebuke because it's from a loving God. Simon, son of John. I told you three weeks ago when we started into John that anytime you see Jesus addressing Peter as Simon, he's about to chastise him. Peter is his new name, the rock, the one he will become. Simon is his old name, his old nature. When he floundered, Anytime God wanted to confront Peter for his behavior, it was always Simon, son of John, Simon Bar-Jonah. And that's what you see here is a rebuke because he's taking him right back to the place of beginning. Okay, you're going to act like the beginning, Peter? I'm going to talk to you in your name. That's the beginning. I won't call you Peter. I'll call you Simon. I'm thinking Peter inside is going, please call me the rock. Please call me the rock. And Jesus says, no, you're Simon, because he had to be brought face to face with his failures, what he had done egregiously to disobey God, and he had to be brought face to face because his denials were public, and so God's confronting him publicly in front of his friends. This is the question he asked him. He only says it once, do you love me more than these I want you to see the word for these in the Greek. Look with me up on the screen. The word these is very specific. Hutos, this or that, he, it, she, these, they. So do you love me more than hutos? More than your fishing gear? More than your boats? More than your nets? More than the marketplace? More than these guys around you? Do you love me 
more than this, God never beats around the bush and goes directly. Peter, do you love me more than these? There's an interesting wordplay that takes place here in this passage in the Greek. The word love that Jesus uses is the word agapeo. This is the definition for it because Jesus was serious about this. Agapeo, the highest love of the will, implies total commitment, embracing especially the judgment, the deliberate assent of the will. Jesus is saying to Peter, do you have the highest measure of love for me? The agapeo love. I want you to see Peter's response. Verse 15b, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. Peter is completely aware of his failure. What he did at the cross, his confusion at the tomb, the fact that he's gone out fishing when he's supposed to be at the mountain, and he uses the word love as phileo. He doesn't use agapeo. Look at the definition for phileo. To be a friend, fond of. It denotes personal attachment. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I'm fond of you. Is that what you want to hear? My wife would say, Mark, do you love me? Yes, Lori, I like you. Is that going to cut it? Absolutely not. Now, Jesus, you see, accepts his answer. He says to Peter, okay, tend my lambs. The word is bosco. It's a herdsman's term for one who would take care of the livestock. So do that, Peter. What I understand Jesus is doing at this point is he's beginning to ask Peter to take off this mask. You're going to be a pretender follower of mine? I want you to take off the mask, Peter, because I want to know, do you agapeo me? Peter's response is, I'm fond of you. I phileo you. I want you to walk away from your former life completely, Peter, the highest form of commitment, that you're showing me that you just want to be my friend. What are the these in your life? It's the word hutos, the he, it, she, they. You have some of those? What are the these in your life that might be keeping you from that highest form of relationship to God? The things that might be distracting you in relationships or perhaps attachments to jobs, things that are holding you back from being totally sold out to the kingdom. You need to evaluate yourself in light of this passage and say, where do I stand in relationship to this? Because I see God's not real happy with this position of just being phileo. He wants agapeo. He wants to be totally sold out. Verse 16, this is when it begins to get very uncomfortable for Peter. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Jesus saying to Peter, shepherd my sheep. Once again, Jesus uses agapeo. Once again, Peter uses phileo. Do you know that the primary identification of a believer is your love for God? It goes all the way back to the ancient times of the Old Testament, the Jewish Shema. Look at the definition up on the board from Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So the love of Christ is measured by doing something. We demonstrate it. All of our might, all of our mind, all of our heart. 
Men many times are very reluctant to use this word love, especially associated with God. Do you know that one of the man's men of the Bible, David, who killed lions with his own hands, who wrestled down bear, said, I love God. Psalm 18.1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Here's the difficulty, especially with us guys. We have a difficulty attaching ourselves to things that we can't see because we're very visual. And Jesus understood that. He spoke to that very issue. How do you love something you haven't seen? God gave us inspiration. He gave us a reward if we would love him without even seeing him. Look with me on the screen, John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. Wow. You're blessed if you love God without even having seen him and believe in this. So how do we measure our love for God? Here it is, 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not heavy. They give life. And we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about Jesus' commands also. They're not burdensome. They bring life to us. So I want you to see Peter really squirm now because Jesus asked him a third time. Verse 17, this is where it begins to end. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Remember, this is the same guy who declared at the Last Supper, if everyone else leaves you, I will not leave you. Though everyone else abandon you, I will not abandon you. I will lay down my life for you. Those were Peter's words. Now Jesus is calling him out. His heart is broken. And I want you to see, to understand what this word grieved means. He now gets it. The Greek word for this, grieved, is lupeo, to distress, grieve, to be in heaviness. There's a reason for Peter's grief. The vocabulary has changed. Jesus is now using the word phileo. He didn't say agapeo. Peter, do you phileo me? He's calling into question even the lowest form of love. Because his actions, he's over at the sea fishing. He's denied Jesus. His actions don't support his words in his mouth. He said he loves God. He looks like a Christ follower. He's got the mask on. God's saying the mask you're wearing is inadequate. It doesn't work. So do you even phileo me, Peter? Peter thought he was safe using phileo because it's the lowest form of love. And God's calling into question even the lowest form. The implication is the actions don't match up to the words just because he's saying it. So here's where it ends, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk about wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Peter spent the next 30 years of his life serving powerfully for the kingdom. 
This was his come to Jesus moment. This is the point in which he turned and realized, I've got to put everything else behind me. Two weeks later, Peter is standing in the temple in front of everybody he was hiding from, and he's preaching the gospel, saying Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and you put him to death. What changes a man like that? That's God tugging on his heart. So Peter understood there was a time coming when he was going to have to give up his life. Do you know that he was crucified just like Jesus? Except tradition tells us he was crucified upside down because he told the Romans, I'm not fit to die like my Lord did. So he was executed by the Roman government. So this is the response from Jesus, verse 19b. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. That's what Michael was talking about earlier. Akalutheo, leave everything behind and come after me. It's what you committed to three years earlier, Peter, and I'm calling you to it again. And I think Jesus' words at this moment to say, follow me, was like new life coming into Peter's soul. What, you mean I'm not out of the game? I'm not been put out? I'm not disqualified? Who disqualified Peter? Peter did. Peter took himself out of the game. Up until this point, he's looking at what he did and what's safe. I'm going to go back to what I know, commercial fishing. God's saying, you're not disqualified. Follow me. Get back in. Do you agapeo me? Get your eyes off yourself. Forget your past mistakes and get in the game, Peter. Do you know this is the last time Jesus ever had to call him Simon? Never happened again. He never went back to that old life. He's Peter, the rock from this point forward. And he brought many into the kingdom. There's no longer a question of which Peter's gonna show up. It's the rock, the one who advances the kingdom. So how do you measure the love of God? How do you measure it based on what you've heard? At the pinnacle of the greatest moment in history, God shows up on a beach, stops everything else. He's not out tending to the issues that surround Jerusalem. He's on the beach talking to someone who needs to know what it is to see God's grace and God's mercy and be tugged back in again to get things back in line. He doesn't want any of us to drift away from him, church. He doesn't want any of us to wear this mask of a poser. No one can pretend with Jesus. He sees the heart. That's why he's called Peter on it. He's letting his past and his sin keep him out. But he's got this famous little face on. I'm a Christ follower. No, you're not. This is what it looks like, Peter. Do you love me? So I think it's very poignant to understand that God could have left Peter in the boat. I see Peter out there. He's out there in the water. Yeah, he's really pushed my buttons a few too many times. I'm going to leave him out there. Is that the nature and character of our God? No. Try the other side. Come on in. Try this area of fellowship. So he's not only blessing Peter, he's calling him back into this life. That's what I'm asking you this morning. Have you ever tried the other side? You've been trying so hard to do it on your own. You're so busy trying to pull the nets up off the bottom of the ocean. Jesus is saying, give up on that attempt to do it on your own. Try my side. 
you'll find it's the beginning of an amazing life. If you've never addressed this issue in your life, whether you're so caught up in past mistakes, you won't allow yourself to get in the game, or you've never made this commitment before to King Jesus, this is your opportunity this morning. And I also believe this is the third group here this morning. There's many believers who have allowed themselves to be handcuffed and never experienced the fullness of serving Jesus Christ just because we think we're disqualified. I've made mistakes. I absolutely have had times when God has called me to do something, and I think my plan is better, and I'd rather go about that. And then God invites me to sit down to the grill, and I usually come out of that black and blue because I realize his plan was the right way. And those are hard moments to face. Some of you here this morning, and I've been praying for this moment for months, I know God is speaking to you. You feel that tugging in your heart? That's God. And you just feel like you're going to bust inside if you don't do something with this. Now, here's your opportunity. There's welcome cards in the pew racks in front of you. If you take one of those before you leave this morning and just write your name on there, you want me to pray for you? I would be thrilled to do that. Take one of those welcome cards, write down your prayer request, the area that you're struggling with. Slide it in the offering boxes on the way back, on the back on the way out this morning. But here's a second opportunity for you. You're feeling bold on behalf of the kingdom? You want to address this issue now? I'm going to be standing up here with a few prayer warriors when Michael leads us in this last song. Because Jesus is really calling you, try the other side. It works much better. That's what he died for, church, and that's what he was resurrected for, to give you newness of life. So we're going to take a minute and pray right now, and I'm going to invite you just to spend time with me in prayer. And if you have one of these moments where you feel like, I've got to talk to him about this, come on up, tap me on the shoulder and just say, I'm a Peter. I'll get it. I'll understand what you're talking about, and we'll pray together, okay? So right now, let's just seal this with God. Let's spend some time in prayer. Father, here we are as your church before you. This room is full of people who have lots and lots of things on their mind. God, help us to make this one thing preeminent. You are the Lord of all. You gave us this time right here, not by accident, but deliberately. Help us face these issues. Whatever it is, Father, that might be inhibiting us and holding us back from being absolutely all you want us to be. God, I ask that you would penetrate our hearts right now. For those one, two, three, 10, 20 sitting here this morning, I don't know. God, I ask that you would speak directly to their hearts. Tell them this is the time. This is the time to deal with it. Father, don't let us be held back because you have so much in store for us. We take this time right now and we offer it to you for the glory of the King and for the advancement of his kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen.